with us today is Dr. Deb Johnston to answer our medical questions. Dr. Johnston's specialty is family medicine. She works with the Avera Medical Group Brookings and volunteers as part of the Prairie Doc team of physicians. Good morning, Dr. Johnston. Good morning, Laura. It's great to be here. I think this is the first time that it's actually been warm. Yeah. That I've been here in a long time. So yes. that's great. It is. It's a sunny day out there. We started yes. biking to school now. Ooh. My kids love doing that. So with all the road construction and everything uh. else, I bike with Lydia. Um, so I'm getting my exercise get, in. And, and you're wearing your helmet, right? I'm wearing my helmet. All and she's right. wearing her helmet. Good. So to and from school twice a day now, which is good Perfect. for me. Perfect. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it's good, it's for, good for all of us, especially with that helmet. I think that's, you know, a really important thing. We're heading mm-hmm. into summer. People are starting to to get out and do those active things and it's important to remember to think about safety you know water safety uh, when you're out there at the pool or your kids are at the pool um, you know keep an eye on them don't spend all your time with your book or on your phone be sure that you're keeping an eye on your kids make sure to keep reapplying that sunscreen Mm -hmm. the sun actually degrades sunscreen so you may put on that SPF 50 but you need to put it on again in a couple of hours because the sun eats it away and it's it's not blocking those rays anymore after a couple of hours so reapply your sunscreen pay attention to your bug spray and wear your helmet. Oh, please, please wear your helmet. Make sure your kids wear their helmet, wear their safety gear when they're out rollerblading. Um, much better to prevent those injuries than to try to rehab them. Right. I feel like they do a great job through like Safety Town and all oh, those programs yeah. at just making wearing a helmet your habit. So, yes. so far, it hasn't been an issue with my kids. They, it's just like what you, what you what do, you, do. <laughs> you yeah. know? So... Hopefully that will continue as <laughs> yes. they age. But. Well, and I think, too, that when they see the adults in their lives mm-hmm. wearing their seatbelt, wearing their helmet, doing these things, too, it's just what you do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, when the adult doesn't but says that the kid needs to, then it becomes a natural way to rebel. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, We all need to set that good example for our kids and the neighborhood kids and also to protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. Adult brains are even less forgiving of injuries than young brains are. So uh, wear your helmet for yourself and for all the children in your life. Yeah, kids are good accountability for us adults too, right? (laughs) Even if we're like pulling out the driveway and I haven't quite got my seatbelt on yet. Mom, your seatbelt. Okay, okay, okay. I got it. And you know, I I will look at the kids and I would, well child checks, and I will look look at their parents and say, you have doctor's permission to remind your parents sure. to put on their seatbelts, <laughs> and you can tell them Dr. J says you've got to wear your seatbelt too, right. which I, there are probably parents that kind of curse me out under their breath as they leave, but it's it's good for all of us, and I practice what I preach. Yeah, yeah. So. Good. Those are great reminders as yes. we head into summer. I know here in Brookings, our kids are done with school on Friday. So it is <sighs> yes. time to oh think about all those things. Yes. And, so. and where did that time go? Right. Yes. Right. A mm. quick, quick year this year, it felt That's like. That's right. Well, let's go to our first break and we'll give our listeners an opportunity to call in with any questions that you might have. Give us a call at 605 692 1430. 
605-692-1430. We thank you for listening to Prairie Doc Radio on KBRK and on our podcast. We will return following this informative message from the Avera Medical Group. The grass is growing and that means it's time to mow. Please remember these safety measures to protect your health. Wear goggles, hearing protection, gloves, and long pants. Always wear sturdy closed-toed shoes while mowing the lawn. Do not drink alcohol or use other substances before or while using your lawnmower. Do not remove safety devices or guards on the mower and never insert hands or feet into the mower to remove grass or debris. Parents, teach these safety measures to your children. This safety tip is brought to you by the Avera Medical Group Brookings, 697-9500. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. I'm Laura Ellsworth, and Prairie Doc physician Deb Johnston is here to answer our medical questions. Give us a call with your questions at 605-692-1430. 605-692-1430. This week, we are going to spend some time talking about surgery and some of the advances in surgery. Some of us may not ever have surgery, and some of us are born with certain conditions that may require many surgeries over our mm. lifetime. Dr. Johnson, would you like to... Talk to us about some of that. Yeah, so, um, and I, we've had many conversations about this, so I'm not violating any confidence. But my son, um, and who knows I talk about him a lot, uh, was born with a cleft lip and palate, which is a congenital uh, condition where the upper lip doesn't form. Uh, it, normally, the lip kind of closes in from the side. It forms in kind of pieces. Um, and in his case, and in the case of many people around the world, uh, that process didn't complete. So he was born with a division in uh, the roof of his mouth and a division in the ridge where your teeth attach and a division in his lip that opened up into the nose. In his case, he had what they call a unilateral cleft. So it was only one side that was affected. Uh, But some children can be born with clefts on both sides. So um, neither side closed. And uh, Bo had the initial repair done in China. He he was adopted as a toddler. uh, And um, so we don't we weren't there for that. I, I don't have any real knowledge of of that process for him. Um, but he's now about 20 years old. And since he came home uh, to live with us, uh, he I have totally lost track of how many surgeries he has had. We were just at his cleft team. So um, as is the case for a lot of uh, kind of more chronic illnesses, more multi-process in, uh, illnesses. Um, he has a team of specialists. There, he hasn't seen the geneticist in a very long time, but the team includes a geneticist, um, a speech therapist, an audiologist, uh, plastic surgeons, psychologists a couple of different dental specialists, an ENT doctor. So there's a lot of people involved who all um, play a role in assessing where an individual is in their kind of journey to kind of getting things back to what most of us consider normal. 
Uh, and they all are really important because it's not just a hole in the mouth. It affects speech. It affects the way the teeth come in. It affects chewing and swallowing. And of course, I think everybody can appreciate that uh, that can have a big impact on your mental health. Um, a lot of clefts are just kind of random occurrences. Some of them have to do with environmental insults, and some of them are genetic, and some of them are associated with other genetic conditions. So um, it's not a straightforward thing. And, and repairing that is not a single uh, step process. So um, when we were at his team most recently, a couple of weeks ago, I, I actually had to confess to the team because we'd started it, you know, he had surgery in China. We started at the University of Iowa and then, then we are now at uh, Minneapolis. And I've totally lost track of how many surgeries he's had. I honestly mm-hmm. could not tell you how many times that poor kid has been under anesthesia and had surgery. But And is that is that normal? That's like, normal. Because that, um, as they're growing and developing, you need to keep adjusting. You, and I'm sure there's different and, and steps there's, and stages. And there's different steps and stages okay. that are done at different points of growth and development. Okay. Uh, and in Bo's case, he, you know, he has not had the smoothest course. He's had a lot of different things that didn't work the way we were hoping they mm-hmm. would work, that we had to keep trying a different way to achieve our goal. And so he's had more surgeries even than the average um, individual who's born with a, a cleft lip and palate. But even if everything goes absolutely perfectly, there are many steps in the process of uh, repairing that cleft lip and getting someone a, um, a normal appearing and normal functioning mouth. Uh, so the average cleft kid is going to have multiple surgeries uh, until they get into early adulthood. And most of those kids do have surgeries into early adulthood because you have to wait. You know, us adults don't just look like big infants. You know, we are physically distinct from the infants. So as those growth phases happen, different phases of the repair happen. And um, Bo's situation, I think, was particularly useful for talking about this advances in surgeries because um, probably the most dramatic example I talk about in, in the essay Um, One of the phases of the repair is that they have to put bone into that gap where your teeth attach, um, and they usually harvest that bone. They take the bone from the child's hip, you know, the the hip bone that um, some people will call... Women always like to put their toddlers on that iliac sure. crest and carry carry your kid on your hip there. And so they harvest that bone from that spot and they use that and put that into the um, into that gap where the teeth are gonna need to to grab hold. And Bo had that done the first time um, golly, he was somewhere between eight and ten. I've I've, again, just totally managed to lose track of of when those things happened. Um, And it was absolutely 
horrible. Mm. He still remembers how much pain he was in and how awful that process was. And um, I remember even after we went home and things were better, uh, I had him sleep with me. Um, so that I could be there, yeah. and he is not an individual who's ever been very good at at um, demanding attention. And I remember on more than one occasion waking up in the middle of the night with him silently crying in bed beside me mm-hmm. because he was hurting so badly, and that lasted for a very long time. Um, mm-hmm. That breaks your heart. It, oh, it was horrible. It was horrible yes. as a mama and, and horrible for him, too. Like I say, he mm-hmm. he's a very easygoing individual who just kind of sighs and does what he is understands he needs to do once he understands why he needs to do it. Mm-hmm. But last year, um, when we went to the cleft team and they were talking about that next stage in the repair and they did some x-rays and they discovered that the bone that had been put in when he was young um, had not grown enough and had not filled in enough uh, to serve for the next stage Mm -hmm. in the repair that we needed to do. So we needed to do it again. And he and I were both just beside ourselves Mm -hmm. with the thought of having to go through that again. It was really a horrible thought for both of us. And um, his surgeon this time around said, you know, we've got a new, we've got a new pain management strategy. We've got a, it's actually a long acting Uh, numbing medicine like the dentist might use when they pull your teeth or I might give somebody if I'm going to sew up a cut or take off a mole. Uh, And it works really well. And it's something that uh, was recently approved for kids. So we have it here at the Children's Hospital and we can use this. And I was still pretty skeptical about this because neither Bo nor I could really get out of our head how horrible that experience was. But he went through and he had the surgery done and he he did stay overnight in the hospital um, and got some pain medicine while he was there. And then we left, and I think he may have taken just a couple of doses of Tylenol or Motrin wow. after that. Um, it was truly a revolutionary change. And um, I think that that's something that's really important to remember in healthcare in general that our previous experiences, our family's previous experiences, may not be the same experience that things are now. When I started doing this, it was really commonplace for people to stay in the hospital uh, for a week or two after they had a knee replacement Mm -hmm. or a hip replacement. And now people go home from the hospital the same day and do great, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, I don't want to say it doesn't hurt. It hurts. Right, right. Um, But... You know, they end up using a whole lot less pain medicine, needing a whole lot less pain medicine. Um, things are have just really advanced. Mm-hmm. And so uh, don't let your 
father's experience with their knee replacement make you afraid to get your knee replacement. Um, Don't let your previous bone graft disaster (laughs) (laughs) make you afraid to get the next bone graft. Um, That that is a really great illustration. How does a a decade or so of, of exactly. medicine. And that example, I mean, it sounds to me like it's basically the same procedure. It was just a different way of treating the pain, a medicine for right. treating the pain. And it made that much of a, a difference on difference. his experience. Yes. So it's not even like, oh, now we have this fancy robot or now we have, it was just a change in how we treat the pain. And, and it was uh, the medicine that they use was a medicine that's been available my whole career. The difference was they figured out how to formulate it and put a carrier that would would hold that medicine where it needed to be uh, and turn it into some from something that usually lasts, you know, 12 hours or so into something that would last for a couple of days. Oh, okay. And so the the difference, it's just this you know, from the outside perspective, this tiny little tweak that most of us wouldn't even think at all about. And, you know, that's one of the challenges in medicine is that one person's experience is one person's experience. Mm -hmm. So that was our experience. Um, And those what we call anecdotal and evidence, those stories um, don't carry the same scientific weight that a study that compares, you know, 500 kids that have that bone graft harvesting bef- with and without the medicine and seeing, you know, what's their activity like? How quickly can they get back to, mm-hmm. to seeming to be pain-free? How much pain medicine do they use? How do they rate their pain? How do their parents rate their pain? Um, because... People are individuals, and what works amazingly for one person may not have the same experience for others. But for humans, <laughs> uh, as opposed when we're when we have our human being hat on and not our scientist hat on, boy, those stories make a big difference. Mm-hmm. Gives they, a lot of hope. Don't it say. gives us a lot of <laughs> yeah. hope, and I think it it kind of gives us a way to understand things mm-hmm. and to. Uh, uh, to have that perspective. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, it's time for us to go to our next break. We thank you for listening to Prairie Doc Radio on KBRK and on our podcast. Call us now at 605-692-1430 with any medical questions you would like us to address. Prairie Doc programs are available as a podcast. Just look for Prairie Doc wherever you get your podcast. Today's program will be added to the podcast soon. We will return following this informative message from the Avera Medical Group. Attention drivers, there are many bikers on the road. Please remember these rules. Share the road. Bicyclists have the same rights to the road as motor vehicles do. It is the law to allow three feet between your car and the bicyclist. Give bicyclists space on the road. When turning right, look right before proceeding. Always check the sidewalks as well as the traffic lanes when merging or turning. Slow down and watch for pedestrians and bicyclists. The Avera Medical Group Brookings encourages drivers as well as bikers to help prevent accidents. 
Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. I'm Laura Ellsworth and Prairie Doc physician Deb Johnston is here to answer our medical questions. Give us a call at 605-692-1430. 605-692-1430. Yes, please call. Otherwise, you'll get to listen to my stream of consciousness thinking and, and, and talking here. So call with some questions. And what do you guys want to hear about today? There you go. Well, we've been talking, Dr. Johnson, about some of the advances in surgery that are making a big impact uh, in recovery and in pain management and all of that. Let's talk about uh, how preparing for surgery has made some adjustments in recent years. Um, on your show that you recorded earlier this year, you talked about how you know maybe we, we were asked to not eat 24 hours before right. and things like that are changing with updates and research and treatment options. Yeah. So, you know, one of um, kind of the traditions before surgery is uh, what we call a preoperative history and physical. So, um, you know, if you are a healthy 35-year-old who who tore his um, ACL and, and needs that repaired, Usually that's not something you may ever have to encounter, but uh, when you get to my age and uh, Bob's age, um, you tend to have maybe collected a few health problems or just by virtue of being older, the surgeon may be a little more uh, hesitant to just rush you off for surgery. And so uh, they will ask that you go and see a, a medical doctor, your internist, your family medicine doctor, um, your cardiologist maybe, mm-hmm. uh, to have an assessment about where are your health conditions, what are your other medicines, what do we need to be thinking about um, to make sure that you're in the best shape possible for surgery. And obviously there are some surgeries that you know, you're just going to do. If you're having a heart attack, nobody's going to say, well, let's stop and make sure that, um, you know, make sure your gout's in good control before we we try to put that stent in and stop the damage. Uh, But if you're going to have a more elective surgery where we do it now, we do it in six months, you know, it, it doesn't threaten your well-being. It may be uncomfortable and no fun, but uh, we want to do things in the most safe way possible for somebody. So one of the things that uh, we'll do is people will have that preoperative assessment and we will look at uh, if you have diabetes, how's your diabetes control? Might you have sleep apnea that we should maybe identify before you have your procedure? And we look at your medications. Are there medicines that maybe put you at higher risk for problems with healing or for infections or for blood blood clots or um, those kinds of things? And uh, a lot of medicines, we still ask that you take the morning of your surgery, which would be something that we had not recommended um, when I started for most of these medications. Uh, and when anesthesia asks you to stop eating and drinking, and uh, at one point in time, it was pretty much anything. You didn't eat or drink anything after that cutoff time. And now many times people can continue to drink water up until um, only a couple hours before surgery. But again, that is not a blanket uh, endorsement. That is just a statement that 
those recommendations are a little bit different and it's important that you clarify that with uh, with the anesthesia team. They're mm-hmm. the ones who, who make that call. And they make that call based on a lot of different factors, what the surgery is, what kind of anesthesia they're planning to do. Um, there are some people who um, may, for example, have a condition called gastroparesis, where their stomach doesn't empty the way that an uh, average individual's stomach will empty, uh, or maybe they're on uh, a medication that we know slows down the emptying of the stomach. Uh, for example, I think most of our listeners are probably very familiar with a medicine called Ozempic, mm. which has gotten a lot of attention lately. Uh, it's a diabetes medicine uh, that has some good um, utility in helping people lose weight. So it's a very uh, in-the-news kind of medication right now. But one of the things it does is slow down how quickly your stomach empties. And that is the whole purpose of the don't eat before surgery recommendation. Uh, Because when you get those medicines in surgery that either put you entirely out or put you in your happy place so you don't really care that the surgeon is cutting up your knee, One of the things it does is interfere with your ability to do what we call protect your airway. Mm. So if you have something in your stomach and it comes up, you're going to be less likely to cough or cough effectively and be able to keep that stuff out of your lungs, which is not where you want it to be. I hadn't really understood the reasoning. Thank you for yes. that. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> it does seem kind of arbitrary, doesn't it? Yeah. But yes, you, you can't protect your airway and that muscle at the top of your stomach between your esophagus, the swallowing tube, and the stomach tends to relax. So things in your stomach are more likely to kind of go up and down. Mm-hmm. So we don't we don't want any of that. And surgery itself, anesthesia itself slows down the emptying of the stomach. So there are very important reasons mm-hmm. not to eat and drink uh, before surgery when you're told not mm-hmm. to eat and drink. So it sounds like the advance is that it's maybe not such a blanket statement anymore, but it's very specific based on the person and the surgery it, and it is, risk factors yes. and all of that. So it's there is more um, more ability to kind of customize that mm-hmm. information or that that recommendation. What about recovery from surgery? What are we seeing with surgery recovery and some of the advances? You know, surgical recovery is is also a very different thing now than it was when I started 20 years ago. For example, um, if you think about gallbladder surgeries, uh, gallbladder, so when I was in training, they were just starting to do a lot of things with the laparoscope, mm-hmm. um, which is the little Band-Aid surgery where we've got a camera and the surgeon has almost like long chopsticks that sure. they use to uh, to be able to work inside the abdomen instead of having to have a uh, opening in the gut or the knee or whatever it may be big enough to get your hands in there. It just needs to be big enough to get the tools in there and then they can see with the camera. Uh, and so 
those smaller incisions, those better surgical techniques, uh, really improve pain afterwards, improve mobility afterwards. Um, you know, back in the days of my beginning in medicine, um, it was pretty common for people to need those open gallbladder surgeries, and they would be in the hospital for a few days. Mm-hmm. And now it's an outpatient procedure. So some really great advancements. Really great yeah. advancements. Dr. Jensen, we only have a couple minutes left. And I know one thing we wanted to touch on were the COVID booster ah, recommendations, yes. something you're very passionate about. I, so I love us, talking about give shots. Give us the update. I love talking about <laughs> shots. Um, so some listeners may be familiar with the fact that um, the CDC and the FDA and, and all of those uh, the Vaccine Advisory Committee, all of those really super smart people have come out and said that some people uh, are eligible and even should get a second dose of the bivalent COVID vaccine. This is the one we were giving out um, in the fall uh, when we people were getting their flu shot. So people over 65 mm-hmm. should get this uh, and people who uh, have significant compromise to their immune system. So not necessarily the person who just kind of seems to catch everything that goes around, but people that have blood cancers, people that are on chemotherapy, um, people who are on certain medicines to control immune system dysfunction or um, uh, other kinds of situations. So uh, the big qualification is it has to have been four months since your last shot. Okay. Uh, So Check with your doctor if you're not sure. Uh, Go get your COVID shot, your second booster if you're over 65. Uh, Also, one important thing for our over 65 listeners, Medicare Part D is now required to cover more vaccines. So one of the issues we always had with, for example, the shingle shot Mm -hmm. was that it's really expensive and you got to get two of them. Uh, And if insurance wasn't going to help you with that, a lot of people didn't. But now insurance is supposed to your Part D plan, the one that helps Mm. you with drugs is supposed to help you with that. So keeping up to date with your tetanus shot and getting your shingle shots, it's going to be a whole lot easier. Okay, that's good news. All right, thank you, Dr. Johnston. Well, before we go, please be sure to tune in to South Dakota Public Broadcasting Television and the Prairie Doc Facebook page for On Call with the Prairie Doc most Thursdays starting at 7 p.m. Central. This week on Thursday, May 25th, join us for an encore episode of Advances in Surgery. Pradoc host Deb Johnston is joined by Dr. David Fromm and Dr. Jay White. So tune in tomorrow night on SDPB Television. We hope you've enjoyed our Prairie Doc radio program and will listen again for Prairie Doc on KBRK, brought to you by the Avera Medical Group Brookings. My thanks to Dr. Deb Johnston for joining us today. And as Dr. Holm would say, stay healthy out there, people.